favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with another Slate spoiler special. This week, we're going to be spoiling Lightyear, the new fifth movie in the Toy Story franchise. Do we want to call it the fifth movie? I don't know, but I will decide with my co-discussant, Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate. Hey, Sam. Hi, Dana. Thanks for coming in on this one. I liked what you wrote on Lightyear, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. You get into kind of a deep dive on the villain, Zerg, and and what role he plays in the whole um, Toy Story franchise. But first of all... Help me with this. I mean, in a way, there's so much to say about this movie, and in a way, there's so little. Um, I think we both maybe felt similarly about it as a movie. But before we get started, just tell me, yes or no on Lightyear, would you send your friends, would you take your kid? Did you take your kid? (laughs) Well, my kid is 13, so she refused to go with me, um, which obviated that question. Um, And uh, no, I probably would not. It's a hard movie to kind of muster a lot of feelings about. Like, I'm not exactly sorry I sat through it, but I don't see any reason why anyone else would do that. And I guess based on the opening weekend box office, it seems that people uh, generally agree with that. Yeah, I guess the box office was really disappointing, which also may have to do with the fact that this is the first, I believe, theatrical only release from Pixar since the pandemic, right? This is them testing the waters of, well, what if you have to come into the theater? And people seem to be saying, no, we'd like our Disney Pixar at home. Thank you very much. Yeah. I guess I asked about your daughter not realizing that she was 13 already, because I do think my exception to, in general, not liking this movie is that if I had a small child, I would take them to it. I think it's a perfectly sweet and well-crafted movie. It's just that the expectations that we have of a Pixar movie, and particularly one in this series, to me are so much higher than what it was able to fulfill. So I said in my review of Lightyear that I find it to be the saddest Pixar movie, almost from the outside perspective of why did it exist in the first place? Certainly not the saddest in terms of its subject matter necessarily, but it left me with a kind of a, a depressed feeling. And I think it was because it just really did feel like a piece of IP for the first time uh, in a while anyway, from from Pixar. Right. Pixar has been pretty good at not making movies for children that feel wrote things that aren't sort of necessarily predicated by the idea that like kids are going to go see it anyway, so we don't actually need to make it good. Um, They've sort of made them good anyway. This one feels like a movie where they started from the premise that people were going to go see it no matter what they did, and they raised the level of their game accordingly. Right. I mean, the movie... As far as content goes, it's not cynical at all. It's a very sweet message. And I think it was, you know, they honestly tried to craft it to be a good delivery of that message. But the cynicism comes in with the fact that this trilogy that felt perfectly complete to everyone at Toy Story 3 was then spun out again for Toy Story 4, which I liked more than some people, but which definitely felt like they're starting to milk it. And, you know, now sort of getting into these prequel, spin-off, high-concept things, it's just starting to feel more, sadly, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Right. There's sort of a joke going around for months now, right, when they first announced the movie, and Chris Evans, who voices Buzz Lightyear in this, did this sort of semi-awkward treat trying to explain the concept of the movie, saying, no, well, look, this isn't actually Buzz Lightyear the toy. This is the movie about the human that Buzz the toy is based on. Um, and people have been kind of making fun of that for a year and a half. And the actual idea behind it is not that hard to understand. But what I think is underlying is there's just no compelling reason for, like, why this thing exists. Um, so explaining it in plot terms is not that hard. Explaining it in an existential sense, uh, justifying it is uh, more complicated. Right. Do you want to start off with just the title card that establishes the premise? Yeah, so the movie opens with three title cards um, that read, In 1995, a boy named Andy got a Buzz Lightyear toy for his birthday. It was from his favorite movie. This is that movie. Uh, so basically what we're looking at is sort of the franchise spawning initial installment of a thing that, if you read an interview with the director, is apparently by the time Andy was however old he is in, in Toy Story 1, um, had already been around for quite a while and been spun off into sort of various iterations. But that's where his attachment to this toy comes from. That's where Buzz Lightyear, why there are aisles and aisles of him in the toy stores to begin with. And this is kind of where it all started. So this is a live yeah. action movie in theory, although it's also animated, which is where we started to get into like things being pointlessly confusing. But in theory, <laughs> right. we were watching animated versions of real people and not animated versions of toys. Right. It's live action in universe of a universe where nobody's live action. So that's the um, existential pit it exists in. But as for the story itself, I mean, that all sounds so conceptual that you might think that you'd be stepping into some thicket of, you know, mirrored identities and this and that and time travel. Well, there is some time travel that comes along. But really, this is a very routine um, space adventure movie, you know, and what really begins after that that title card premise gets laid out is something that could 100% just be from a, you know, after school special style. I don't know, like a, a, a space opera of our youth from the 80s or so. Yeah, you mentioned in your review just in passing um, Charlie Kaufman's movie Synecdoche, New York. Um, and there is sort of a version of this. It's like the really whacked out like Charlie Kaufman version of it that or like it's, you know, sort of the adaptation of Buzz Lightyear where it's flipping back and forth between universes and conceptual frames. Um, and that's that's not what Lightyear is at all. So as Lightyear begins, this time uh, we have the astronaut of the title being voiced by Chris Evans rather than um, Tim Allen. I think it's it's seems like a pretty contiguous character, but it's sort of hard to displace that character from the Toy Story universe, of course, because in the Toy Story universe, he is a toy. <laughs> but Buzz Lightyear as a man has a whole different set of conflicts. Obviously, he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he is a real adventurer in space. He is. But instead, he finds himself up against this, again, pretty routine sci-fi problem of being stranded on a strange planet. This is because he was so hubristic in his attempt to rescue his team, his starship team, from this planet that he essentially destroys the fuel cell in their spaceship and strands them on this pretty inhospitable planet where they have to live inside a dome so as not to be attacked by giant vines. So he's essentially has a sort of um, survivor's guilt at the beginning, or not quite a survivor's guilt, but the guilt of the of the man who messed up the mission in the first place. Right. It's weirdly never entirely explained, but basically the general idea seems to be that Buzz and his fellow space rangers are kind of the advance guard for interplanetary colonization. So they have this whole ship full of people in deep freeze, and they're just supposed to find habitable worlds. The world that they found at the beginning of the movie turns out to be uninhabitable, so they're just trying to get out of there. But Buzz, being a sort of cocky flyboy, doesn't listen to his other space rangers, crashes the 
spaceship. And so all these colonists have to wake them up and get them to settle this rather unideal planet because they can't leave. Right. And the other character to bring up here is his, I guess you'd call him his co-pilot. She seems to be his commander, although they're pretty close in rank, right? And this is uh, the character of Alicia Hawthorne, voiced by Uzo Aduba. Yes. So the sort of MacGuffin in this movie is basically hyperspeed fuel that they need to get off the planet. They used up the last of it when they crashed the ship. So they have to let all the colonists out to like rebuild society so that they can figure out sort of rediscover from scratch how to build this fuel. Um, And Buzz, they keep making different versions of it, testing different formulas. And every time they come up with one, Buzz needs to go out into space, um, try to get as close as he can to hyperspeed, which is basically light speed, um, and then come back to the planet. And he discovers after his first test flight um, that, uh, because if you remember your introductory physics, as he approaches the speed of light, time moves faster on the planet and slower for him. So his one flight that's half an hour, four years have passed on the planet. And so he keeps, you know, trying and trying different, doing different iterations of this fuel because he's very single-mindedly focused on this one task. And meanwhile, as we see, especially through the life of his partner, um, people are just living their lives on this planet. She you know, finds a girlfriend, she gets married, they have a kid, Um, eventually that, she has a a grandchild, she kind of grows old and dies. And meanwhile, Buzz is just kind of going around the planet again and again, getting, you know, 0.6, 0.7, 0.8 light speed, but never quite getting there. Right. And we learn all of that, that the planet is aging faster than he is in a sort of up-style montage, right? I mean, it has nowhere near, for me, the emotional power of the up-montage, but it has a similar function in that, you know, we, we sort of see time passing in this accelerated way and uh, and see the effect on him emotionally of watching his whole world slip away from him. As you mentioned in your writing on the film, this would be really too bleak to handle, especially for a children's movie, if a cute mascot were not involved. But they give him a cute mascot. Do you want to talk about Socks? I mean, can we talk about anything other than socks? Maybe we should just <laughs> I mean, talk about socks. Socks is really, he's both the most marketable toy and I think probably the best concept in the movie, um, which doesn't go that far because this movie is not that full of clever concepts. But I admit that I did like socks, particularly his very unusual voicing by a non-voice actor, right? By, I, I believe, one of the animation directors of the movie. Yeah, Peter Stone, who uh, worked on The Good Dinosaur, among other movies. And there's a long tradition of this at Pixar going, I think, all the way, at least all the way back to uh, Heimlich the Caterpillar in uh, A Bug's Life, which was voiced by animator Joe Ramft. I think in that case, he just kind of laid down a scratch track when they were doing the initial animation. They thought, you know what, this is really good. Like, let's just keep it. And since then, I mean, all animators kind of have to be actors to a certain extent um, just to have something to reference when they're drawing these things. So Pixar has kind of a long tradition now of just you know, keeping animators' voices in the movie. So this is an instance of that. And Peter Stone gives that, I think, what is arguably the standout performance in the entire movie against some, you know, pretty professional actors. Right. And with some very, very minimal lines like meow, 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 meow a lot of the time or making goofy sound effects. But yeah, that is an effective relationship. And it is something that leavens the the bleakness of us having to watch Buzz outlive all of his loved ones as he continues monomaniacally to try to escape the planet. I feel like the the script could have been a little bit clearer on uh, to what extent it was just purely his monomania obsession that got that got them into that trap or to what extent he was sort of sacrificed, you know? I mean, it's also kind of the choice of the rest of the the planetary colonists to let him keep on doing these rounds that are going to eventually 
age him out of their lives. Right, because we're only sort of seeing, in order to compress this whole thing into, as you say, maybe 10 minutes or something, we don't really get a sense of how the rest of the colony feels about this idea that they're eventually kind of just going to stay on this planet and they sort of put up a big laser shield to keep the uh, giant bugs and sentient vines um, that have would otherwise be dragging them off to God knows where out. And they're just, you know, if there's a point in which all of them just decide that they're just kind of going to live their lives and this is home now, or some of them are like, yeah, man, keep going up. We'll see you in four years because we sure want to get off this rock. Um, we don't really know whether that's working or not, but it certainly plays out in the movie. Like this definitely becomes Buzz's obsession. And that sort of the emotional core of the movie, I guess, is, is this sort of fanatical devotion to your one task, you know, what he thinks of as his space ranger duty, his identity versus what's actually going on with all the people around him. And that kind of, uh, I don't know, intellectual rigidity or something is is what the movie eventually suggests is maybe not such a great idea. Yeah, I mean, I would say for the first half or maybe even almost two thirds of the movie, the main antagonist is Buzz himself. It's an internal conflict about him trying to overcome this part of his personality that won't give up on the mission, even when the mission doesn't make any sense. And in fact, people have moved on with their lives. And that's a pretty interesting conflict for a kid's movie. But it gets, I think, not fairly dropped in favor of a more traditional villain story and one that harks back to earlier Toy Story movies. Uh, a little ways in. And I want to start there after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. So once we're in what I would consider the back half of the movie, I'm not sure exactly what point this is in the runtime, but it's after that entire generation of people that Buzz came up with on the planet is gone, right? And that, in fact, not only has that entire generation uh, passed away, but his old friend and mentor, Alicia Hawthorne, now has a granddaughter, Izzy, voiced by Kiki Palmer, who becomes, she's a trainee, an astronaut in training, who kind of becomes the protege of Buzz in turn. So the movie now sets off on a second set of conflicts. And here's where I wanted to get into your investigation of the character Zerg, voiced by Josh Brolin here, who has a genealogy in the Toy Story world and is being used in a different way here. And I thought was really the least effective part of the movie. Nothing to do with Josh Brolin's voice characterization, but just that this uh, kind of 11th hour entry of this robot villain to me was a moment that the movie felt very rote and like it didn't know what it was trying to say. Well, yeah, I agree with that. So this whole sort of second final section of the movie takes place. Buzz finally gets his light speed fuel, gets all the way up to fully light speed. Hooray, finally comes back. And this time 22 years have passed. Um, and it's a bit of a sort of Planet of the Apes scenario where now this, you know, one human outpost is not only covered by a laser shield, but seems to be under perpetual attack by these army of robots um, commanded by this figure named Zerg. The only humans outside the shield, really the only people we see, are this kind of patrol of misfits, uh, one of them being Izzy, who you mentioned, voiced by Kiki Palmer, um, another one uh, voiced by Taika Waititi. And we find out that these robots are all under the command of Zerg, who is kind of Buzz's historical nemesis from the Toy Story movies. And in those movies, he's basically, I mean, he's, basically Darth Vader to begin with, although they don't really, it's not a character with a whole lot of integrity or continuity from one movie to the next. Like nobody really cares. It's a toy. So the toy can be anything that the kid playing with him wants to be at that time. But he's, you know, the the bad guy. He has a big, deep voice. Um, he says some sort of evil galactic emperor uh, wants to rule the universe, fight Buzz, all that, yada, yada, yada. So that's basically who the bad guy is set up to be in this movie. There's a little bit of a sort of uh, half-hearted explanation of, they call the robots the Zerg because that's the only noise they make. 
and it's not even clear if this guy's name is Zerg or why they've just accidentally called the robots the same thing or something. It seems like this whole movie feels like it's a couple, you know, a draft or two from being fully complete. <laughs> like there's some things that just don't quite connect. That's a little bit like the Sleestacks in Land of the Lost, right? They were called yeah. They were called after the only sound they knew how to make. I mean, I think the reason I, I wanted to hear you on Zerg is just I felt like it was a moment of almost... I don't know, I, I want to call it like intellectual dishonesty or IP dishonesty or something. The moment that this character of Zerg, who, as you say, is really just this jokey antagonist who is kind of invented to, to poke fun at the world of boring robot antagonists in, in kids' science fiction movies and toys, etc., right, becomes this figure that we're supposed to relate to and relate to Buzz's relationship to him. And you mentioned in passing that there's a there's a tossed away line in one of the Toy Story movies where Zerg says, I am your father, right? In a, in a kind of uh, Darth Vader Star Wars reference. But this movie actually kind of takes that seriously. And the twist turns out to be, since we're doing a spoiler special, that Zerg is not Buzz's father. But if I understood this correctly, a sort of projection of Buzz's future self or like Buzz from an alternate future reality? Explain what's going on when suddenly, you know, there's an even later than the 11th hour, 11 and a half hour confrontation between Buzz and his older self from the future. Right. Well, so there there are enough cutaways to just the head of this big robot villain that eventually, you know, you start to think, okay, this isn't, clearly this isn't a robot. Like this is a suit. Like somebody's going to be in there at some point. I figured out that much. I did not figure out that jumping almost all the way to the end of the movie that when the suit finally opens up, uh, who will come out is basically this old sort of cranky, embittered version of Buzz himself, uh, voiced by James Brolin. Um, and then maybe in this Buzz, who it's sort of semi-explained, but not really, like, isn't an older version of this Buzz, but a different Buzz that's somehow older. Like, there's a lot of hand-waving going on here. But is, is there some butterfly effect sort of suggestion that if, if Buzz had made different choices, that's the person he would turn out to be? I mean, I've looked around to see if somebody else did a sort of like Reddit deep dive on this and explained it. Um, and I was missing something that kind of explains it in the movie, but it really doesn't seem like they do. It, it just kind of seems, again, this is one of those moments where it's like, well, it's good enough for kids. I wouldn't really need to explain it. But yeah, this is basically a Buzz who sort of completed his mission but the colonists didn't want to leave, become you know, just increasingly embittered by being stuck on this planet, being not be able to go out and range among the stars as space rangers are meant to do. And so eventually kind of just keeps going back out in space by himself, I guess getting more and more sort of, you know, the equivalent of cabin fever, just, you know, being out and out in space for years by himself. And eventually just kind of goes nuts, but goes far enough in the future that they have discovered how to kind of harness the time travel effect that this light speed fuel allows them to do. And so he has gone back from the future to this kind of midpoint where he's met up with his other buzz, but he, now he's out of fuel and he needs more fuel to go all the way back to the beginning of the movie and basically stop the ship from crashing so that they never get marooned on the planet in the first place. And Buzz can go back to doing what he's meant to do, which is not sort of Basically, just be kind of like, you know, the cool middle-aged dude, like, going from one planet to the next, never having to settle down or, you know, deal with any real responsibilities. Like, that's sort of the the nut of this, right? Like, this buzz never wants to grow up. He just wants to kind of perpetually be a vagabond, I guess, you know, or a drifter. 
Right. And what ends up being his salvation, which could have been, when I think of it, a kind of a cool ecological metaphor, but is not at all used in that way, is that he has to accept. He has to accept the crash-landed life on the planet under a dome, fighting the vines, whatever their lot has turned out to be. And I think the movie ends up sort of being an argument on behalf of, you know, there's no place like home, even if, if home is a dome on a strange, remote, stranded planet with giant vines. Right. Well, he has to look at the fact that you know, if, okay, so yes, they could go back in time and change the timeline. You know, spaceship gets out the planet, great, everyone is happy, and they go off to a colonist and presumably better world. But if that happens, you know, maybe his uh, partner, Alicia, doesn't meet her partner. Maybe she doesn't get married and have a son, and maybe that son doesn't have Izzy and all the people in this, you know, present of the second half of the movie. Maybe they, maybe they don't all have the lives that they've had. Those all get wiped out. And sure, Nobody's ever going to know because the timeline will have been changed. But he he starts to feel that, it, you know, it's not just about him. It's not just about his mission. It's about these lives that all these people have lead. And it's not his uh, place to go and just wipe those out because of some, you know, marching orders that he got 50 years in the past or wherever we are at this point. All right. I think that's an accurate summary of where the movie puts him at the end. Whether or not that's a satisfying or even quite sensical way for the movie to end is another question, which I think we should address. But first, I'm going to take a break for another quick word from our sponsor this week. So when we lay it out the way that we're talking about it, it seems like this movie is full of meaningful ethical quandaries and, you know, self-discovery and sort of moments of real progress for the characters. But while watching the movie, I felt that all the emotional beats it was hitting were very pat. And I'm just wondering if you feel like me that this movie didn't, not only did it not quite stick the landing, I just really don't know, other than, again, you know, be a retread of familiar IP and have a couple of new cute characters, know what this movie was trying to, to say. Right. Yeah. For me, what really distinguishes the Pixar movie, I mean, they, they came into being as this, you know, one of the first sort of digital animation companies. So people, I think, often think of them in technical terms. But for me, what really distinguishes their movie is the sort of story factory that it comes out of. And they really work through their emotional beats. And I think in sort of later years, Pixar, like almost to a fault, like it starts to get a little bit mechanistic, like how clearly you can see them like establishing the stakes at the beginning of the movie. And here's the part where they get raised. And um, it, it's a little bit like watching, you know, Sid Field give a screenwriting uh, seminar, but with cartoons. So in this case, you know, you just see that really happening very nakedly in this movie. There's one point where they get, um, the characters get kind of like stuck in this moon base or something. And they, they set off an alarm. So they're all trapped in these little cones of light and then that sort of imprison them all separately, but then they realize when they bump into each other, the cones combine, and then two people are stuck in one cone instead of two separate cones. So at first they're all trying, you know, not to do that, and there's some, you know, physical comedy involved in them all, almost everyone ending up in the same cone, and Buzz is still off by himself. And then they realize that in order to, like, short-circuit the wiring so they could get out, they actually all have to be in the same cone and, you know, use all their weight together to do it. And it's just such a obvious representation of like, you need to work as a team. You can't be individuals. <laughs> and I feel like that works up to a point. And then you get to this weird part with Zerg at the end, which is sort of about rule following and inflexibility and, I don't know, career versus other ways of evaluating the worth of a life. And it's just like, who, what kid cares about this? What grown up is not already like thought through all this. Like, I just don't, I don't understand what's going on at that point. Yeah. What kid cares about this seemed like a, a real emergent question throughout the entire movie, because even if you're somebody who thinks the Toy Story 4 
you know, it really doesn't belong as an anomaly in the series. Personally, it, it went a long way for me because of Forky, because that's just an adorable character. And I still felt that that movie, while not perfect, had the spirit of the Toy Story films. This one really departs from that spirit. And if you kind of want to encapsulate the charm of this series in the first place and what's made this 27-year-old now franchise be, you know, so important to multiple generations, including, you know, some little kids that were in the, the screening I was at, you were obviously knew all their Toy Story characters and lore very well, is that it was about childhood. You know, it had a very common and very simple theme running through all the movies in that it was about childhood, imagination, you know, the relationship of a child to his toys and the idea that that could be a reciprocal relationship, right? This simple but really rich and profound idea that got explored in different ways through those four movies. And now that the conceit of there being a toy universe, right, and there being a child toy relationship at the heart of the movie is gone, and this is just supposed to be whatever generic movie inspired the toy in the first place, it seems like the series has really lost its way. Right. And it just feels like a little bit, what should we make a movie about? Uh, Toxic masculinity. Why not? Right. Yeah, you know, like all these all these struggles are perfectly legitimate things for a movie to be about at some point. But why this movie for this audience? And exactly. And who is that hypothetical child who's going to be really concerned about Buzz Lightyear's sort of career versus family, you know, struggles as he as he skips through time? I mean, I think that's all I've got. And I feel like I'm I'm in a way being unnecessarily harsh because, again, if you're the parent of a little kid, there are far worse things you could do with your Sunday or Saturday afternoon than take your kid to see this movie. There's nothing objectionable in it. You know, it's nicely done. It's got some sweet performances and characters. And yeah, it's a fine kids movie. I think a part of me just can't help but be a little sad that that's all Pixar wanted it to be. Well, and I think people have been, you know, fairly pointing out that over the last two years, I mean, Disney has really been um, sort of downgrading most of the Pixar movies and sending them all direct to streaming while all the Disney movies end up in theaters. And that includes some really good movies like Turning Red most recently or, or Soul, which end up, you know, wind up winning the Oscar. And this is, this is the Pixar movie that they choose to go back to theaters with. And it just really feels like regressive in a lot of hinky ways you know, that this this is the one that gets treated like a proper movie, but it actually has like so much less going on than a lot of the ones that it sent straight to streaming. And this is the one that feels like, you know, if this has been a direct-to-video movie back in the days of, you know, VHS and DVD, I think it would have seemed perfectly fine for that. It just doesn't really belong in a movie theater. Yeah, it's a little bit one of those those slightly related spinoffs that might have turned precisely into a, into a straight-to-video in the old days. All right. Well, if they spin it out yet again and milk out a Toy Story 6, which is essentially what the next iteration would have to be, will you will you dutifully slog back in and, and help me piece it out? My angry future self would be happy to do that. <laughs> All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this one. That's our show for this week. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And please, if you like our show, rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. For Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Hold up. 